It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. It is time to examine a question of momentous importance to the country. And that is, are television ratings going down? You can see where I might have more than a passing interest in this subject. There's this whole fight going on with Nielsen. Because first of all, look, we're coming out of a pandemic. It's going on for more than a year. People have been stuck at home. Movie theaters are closed. Concert venues are closed. A lot of restaurants are closed. You would think ratings would be soaring. And that's what networks are saying. That's what cable and satellite providers are saying. And Nielsen's like, oh, not so much. Actually, they're going down. Nielsen statistics show the percentage of Americans who watch TV at least sometime during the week. I mean, that's a pretty low bar. All you can do is like watch one show. Declined from 92% in 2019 to 87% so far this year. Obviously, 87% is high, but, you know, that's a significant drop. Um, and so the industry comes back and says, look, we know that you're wrong because we have set-top cable boxes, which show viewing is up, uh, sales and TV sets are up, and things like that. Uh, nevertheless, Nielsen's saying, hey, the truth hurts, according to the AP. ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, average primetime uh, viewership on those broadcast networks, down 16% last week from the same week in 2020. And the drop would have been even greater if it wasn't for the, the final four. Um, now, Nielsen admits it's not doesn't sample as many people as it used to, so I don't even know if these numbers are reliable anymore. But a lot, you know, a lot of all the advertising is sold on this. You know, if your ratings go up, your network can charge more for a 30-second spot. That's why this is so crucial. It's the financial foundation of the business. Um, Nielsen says, hey, you know, more people are spending time on their tablets, on their phones. Uh, the podcast market is soaring. That's good news for someone like me. Um, there was a long time when there was no sports on TV, a um, lot more reruns on the networks because of the production shutdown. So anyway, that's the battle uh, where it stands. I now want to turn my attention to the lowly Kanish. Uh, this is a story in the forward, uh, the newspaper based in New York, on, you know, aimed at Jewish readers. And, you know, for me, having grown up in New York, I really think, I mean, obviously it's a Jewish food, but I think of it really as a New York thing. When I went to the beach, you know, there would always be guys going around going, you know, hot knishes, cold soda. I mean, it was just a staple. Uh, apparently, it's not as popular anymore. So the political spin on this, according to this article, is that uh, oh, back in 1968, there was a book that said, no New York politician in the last 50 years has been elected to office without having at least one photo showing him on the Lower East Side with a knish in his face. You know, it's the equivalent in New York City politics of you going to the Iowa State Fair for the caucuses and you eat corn dogs. You go to the fair, I mean, it's like one of the things you do. Uh, so the article suggests that, you know, Andrew Yang, Scott Stringer, and other New York mayoral candidates, the primaries in June, they should go visit, uh, what is the name of this place? Oh, Yona Schimmel's Kanish Bakery. <laughs> Open since 1910 in Lower Manhattan. Um, but, uh, Kanishas are still found in delis, sometimes on food carts, and in you know, Jewish neighborhoods in the outer boroughs, but it's become rarer and more expensive. No New York politician has taken on the cause of the dying sidewalk Kanish. Very sad to hear about that. By the way, just as long as we're talking about New York politics, there's been a bunch of stories lately that literally have versions of the same headline. 
will Andrew Yang actually be the next mayor of New York City? Which says to me, one, he's being taken more seriously. He's the nominal frontrunner in the polls. There's like 75 candidates and who knows. And secondly, when you get stories about that written about you, it means that there's a whole wave of negative press coming because the, the, the journalists are going to start taking you more seriously. Well, what does this guy really stand for? Is he really qualified to be mayor of New York? The other uh, rivals start attacking you more, so look for more Yang stories. All right, a lot of stuff here on the podcast today. So, number one, I guess Joe Biden's approaching his 100th day in office, and there just happens to be, oh, I don't know, it must be coincidence, a spate of stories saying, hey, you know, this guy is pretty successful and he's making liberals happy. So here's a piece in The Atlantic, liberal magazine saying, you know, a lot of libs were skeptical of Biden, certainly during the campaign. He was hardly, you know, he, he ran as the more middle of the road, you know, lunch bucket guy from Scranton Democrat uh, versus the likes of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, yes, Kamala Harris. Um, and um, the Atlantic piece says, surprisingly, Biden is now being talked about as possibly a transformational president. Keep in mind, it's still early. Um, so the, the, the backstory here, according to Atlantic, is he was a conservative Democrat. Well, he was a liberal Democrat who was just not as left wing as the AOC types. Um, one conservative publication at once labeled him the senator from MBNA because he was friendly to the credit card industry based in Delaware. I guess that used to be a major bank. Um, he conducted the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings, which kind of hurt him. He voted for the Iraq War. Um, and anyway, he was not the guy you'd expect to be a big liberal president, at least as liberal as this. But Biden sold the country on a massive rescue package. Um, well, that even Bernie is calling the single most significant piece of legislation for working class people that's been passed since the 1960s. He's got Bernie on board. It's got, you know, more of a safety net for caregivers, uh, climate change, which is part of the new so-called infrastructure package, um, standing up for American workers, standing up for Amazon workers, although the unionization effort failed, um, an improbable coming together of people and forces, a moderate president with an ascendant progressive movement at his back and a once-in-a-generation window of opportunity. And now liberals are asking themselves, according to this piece, how did we get him so wrong? Uh, this is an interesting paragraph. The old emphasis on bipartisanship and outreach has been quietly displaced in Biden's Washington with an emphasis on coalition. What does he mean by that? Attending first and foremost to your own side. Everyone balancing the holding of their own with the holding of their nose. But isn't that interesting? Because what did Donald Trump do during his four, four years as president. The most significant thing he did was he tended to his own side. I must have said a thousand times if he would reach out to some of those who didn't vote for him in 2016 uh, with slightly more moderate positions on, you know, you name it, on uh, Obamacare, on welfare spending. I mean, even though he ended up to be a, a big spending uh, president, he did do that when it came to Medicare and Medicaid, because those programs, he said, will not be cut, and they were not cut, uh, but conservative Republicans in the Paul Ryan mode very much wanted to cut those programs, and that's a good way to turn off the middle class, which depends on those programs, particularly Medicare and Social Security. Uh, but ba basically, Trump, I think, never got over 50%, because basically his entire presidency was devoted to 
not traditional or orthodox republicanism, but certainly conservative, a conservative approach, especially on cultural stuff like immigration, but also, you know, on things like health care, which he could never get done, um, and tax cuts and appointing conservative judges and all of that. But when Biden does it, well, now, you know, bipartisanship is out. He's taking care of his own. Well, if you're in the group he's taking care of, if you like his liberal um, proposals as embodied in these two, count them two, two trillion dollar bills, then you say it's great. Now, just happens to be a piece today also in the New York Times saying, you know, Biden hardly had a great romance during the campaign. He got less than 21 percent of the vote, Democratic vote in Iowa and Nevada. 8.4% 8.4% in the New Hampshire primary. That's what everybody and his mother and his brother were saying. He's toast. He's never going to win this nomination. I was not saying that because I thought there was a distinction between the real world Democrats who vote in primaries, which certainly skews to the left, and liberal Twitter, which thinks that, you know, the thought that Elizabeth Warren should have won the nomination. So Biden was never seen, according to the New York Times, as capturing the hearts of Democratic voters in the way that Barack Obama did, in the way that Bill Clinton once did. He basically seemed like their best chance to defeat Trump, who inspired far more passion than he did. Well, I can't argue with any of that. Yet in the first few months of his administration, Biden has garnered almost universal approval from members of his party, according to polls. Um, he began with an approval rating of 98% among Democrats. Wowza, according to, according to Gallup. Even more uh, support among Democrats than Trump had among Republicans, and he, you know, absolutely dominated the Republican polls. Now it's about 90%, which is still pretty good in considering the split in the party between the more, you know, what you might even call the Joe Manchin wing and the Bernie Sanders AOC wing of the party. Uh, during the primary, Biden was an establishment figure, a Washington centrist. Well, you don't think that if you're a conservative, but he was more toward the center more toward worrying about working class voters and how some of the wilder, you know, Green New Deal, Medicare for All stuff would play with them, running against more progressive uh, rivals. Um, But as president, says the Times, he's been governing much like a progressive without abandoning his longtime public identity as a moderate. Well, that's a neat political trick if you can pull that off. How long can you pull that off? You know, certainly people on the right increasingly are saying that Joe Biden is governing, you know, much the way Elizabeth Warren would have. Uh, They don't see him as straddling the middle. They see him as an out-and-out, big-spending, liberal dem who, uh, you know, is using these bills and the pandemic emergency to to try to make big progress on climate change, home care for seniors, uh, bailing out union pension plans. There's a whole lot of stuff on the wish list that is making it into these... um, legislative proposals. So, uh, hence his popularity on the left side of the spectrum. Um, Doing pretty well in the polls, but the bottom line is all this sugarcoats the fact that while he may have some Republican support, well, there are some Biden Republicans out there, who doesn't like getting a $1,400 stimulus check? Who doesn't like uh, the vaccine program ramping up, even with the J&J problem we'll get to in a second? Um, you know, he's delivering stuff. When you're spending money on stuff that um, feels like tangible benefits to the middle class and even the upper middle class, that's a way to get popular. But it's the culture war stuff. His problems at the border, I think, is Joe Biden's biggest political problem right now. 
that makes people on the right say, you know, no, this guy is a, is a, you know, a wacko left winger, terrible president in their view. But even they, you know, he's not, he doesn't have a polarizing personality in the way that Bill Clinton did, in the way that Barack Obama did. There's just something about Biden. I mean, this speech he gave yesterday at the uh, memorial service for uh, Brian Sicknick, the Capitol Police officer who died in the riot and the way he talked to his two little kids, it was very moving. It got some praise on Fox. I mean, you know, when it comes to uh, being the healer in chief or expressing empathy, I mean, that is Joe Biden's wheelhouse. All right, let's move on to number two, a fallout over the pausing of the J&J vaccine. You know, I, I railed about this. I, I have a column on this today on Fox News, and I railed about this on yesterday's podcast. What a blow this is. So here is a Washington Post story saying this is threatens to create a significant hurdle to Biden's campaign to combat what's called vaccine hesitancy. Translation, people don't want to get the thing, or they're scared, or they're worried, or they're just not sure. Uh, just at this critical moment, Frank Luntz, uh, the pollster telling the Washington Post, this is devastating. At the very moment, and he's part of a group to like convince people to get the shot, that conservatives were starting to reconsider their hesitancy. They are told that their fears are real and justified. Right now, there are thousands of people saying, see, I told you so. I, I think he underestimates. I think there are millions of people saying that. Now, as I mentioned yesterday, and as is in this piece, Biden officials quick to minimize the impact. Joe Biden himself uh, told reporters in the Oval, uh, I made sure we had 600 million doses, referring to Pfizer and Moderna. So there's enough vaccine that is basically 100% unquestionable for every single solitary American. And he's right about that. There will be enough doses, certainly by next month, May and June. You know, meanwhile, even today, I know lots and lots of people who are struggling to, who want the vaccine are struggling to get it because there still aren't enough doses now. And I, I've seen friends of mine online saying, I had an appointment to get the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It was just canceled. So now they have to get back into the mob and sort of scramble to get an appointment. So we're not there yet in terms of uh, you know, the percentage of Americans who've been vaccinated. And it's frustrating, even with the mass vax sites opening up and so forth, it's still hard to get this shot if you're not one of the preferred groups. It seems like almost all states now have opened up to anybody over 16. You don't need to be... You know, elderly, you don't need to have a pre-existing condition. You don't need to be a frontline worker in certain professions. But that means that, that tens of millions of people are now eligible. They can't all get appointments at once. Anyway, back to this hesitancy question. Uh, the Post points out many African-Americans remember the decades of mistreatment of black patients at the hands of the medical profession, forced vaccinations, vaccination experiments, and all that. Some conservatives are wary of any government-sponsored push aimed at influencing American behavior. Others worried the coronavirus vaccines were approved too quickly. Uh, and there are lots of conspiracy theories out there. So that's why I think this is a big setback. Hopefully, you know, uh, you know, I remember I read to you yesterday that the National Review had a piece saying, Anthony Fauci, uh, we're sick of hearing from him. He's just become another pundit. He's all over TV. He should stay off TV. Well, not so much. He was on Chris Hayes' MSNBC show last night. He was on Morning Joe today. I'm sure he'll be on more things. Because he's being asked to explain this. And he's doing a pretty good job saying, look, uh, this is out of an abundance of caution. We just need to check. We need to make, doc make sure doctors know the symptoms to look for. Because look, six people died. No, excuse me. Six people had very adverse reactions. One died. One is in critical condition. That's out of 7 million people just about 
who got the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Another reason this is a setback, it's only one shot. So if you're hesitant, it's easier to talk you into getting one shot than having to go back a month later. So that's a story in progress. Uh, meanwhile, Olivia Newsy of New York Magazine asked uh, Jen Psaki, the press secretary yesterday, if Biden and Kamala Harris and other top officials wearing masks, you know, you rarely, almost never saw Donald Trump wearing a mask. You always, almost always see Joe, Joe Biden in a mask. Is that having a negative effect on convincing skeptics to get the virus vaccine? Uh, do you think the White House has said it had any part in this sort of pessimistic message towards some Americans, she asked? Do you think this is having a negative effect? Now, a couple times, Jen Psaki said she didn't quite understand the question. And then she finally said, well, look, when the vaccine is accessible, you should get it. We're working toward being able to have backyard barbecues. Uh, we've had a number of officials out there to convey. Obviously, the CDC has put out guidance that says, this is Saki talking, if you're vaccinated, if your neighbors are vaccinated, you can have dinner inside together. It's a pandemic. We don't think it's easy. We know it's difficult. It's requiring a lot of uh, sacrifice. But at the same time, we're trying to provide accurate public health-based guidance. The problem is, if there's too many, if they say there's too many restrictions on what you can do if you get vaccinated, they reduce the incentive. You know, still, of course, you should still wear a mask when you're in public places. It's still at least a small chance that vaccinated people could either get it or transmit it to someone else. But by and large, you're okay. And you don't have to be as crazy. And you can get together with family members, particularly kids. Um, and if they don't emphasize that, people are not going to be motivated, particularly the ones who are skeptical. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three, moving right along here. This just drives me crazy. We now have a report by the internal watchdog for the Capitol Police, and man, were mistakes made. Uh, you know, look, I have a lot of sympathy for the Capitol Police because they were overwhelmed. The fact that the calls to bring in the National Guard didn't happen when they should have happened before January 6th because of a totally misguided concern about optics. You know what? I'd rather have the Capitol protected than whether, worry about whether it looked bad to have National Guard there to protect what we all knew was going to be a convergence invited by Donald Trump of his supporters, including some of his more extreme supporters, going to the Capitol, and we all know how that turned out. But the Inspector General, Michael Bolton, in his report, says that essentially, this is a really scathing report, that instruct, officers were told by their leaders not to use the most aggressive tactics. Remember when we were all watching it, all glued to our sets, and it seemed like they were, they were removing the metal barricades and people just allowed to walk in en masse into the Capitol, hundreds and hundreds of them? So New York Times got an advanced copy of this. There's a hearing on this tomorrow. Um, the explicit nature of the intel warnings were just unbelievable. I will read to you. Unlike previous post-election protests, the targets of the pro-Trump supporters, and this is what the official guidance was from the intel community, are not necessarily the counter-protesters as they were previously, but rather Congress itself is the target on the 6th. This is the threat assessment. Stop the steel's propensity to track white supremacists, militia members, and others who actively provoke violence may lead to a significantly dangerous situation for law enforcement and the general public alike. It was all there. This reminds me of that report that went to the Bush administration, you know, a month before 9-11. Bin Laden determined to strike in U.S. and then it didn't get to all the right agencies and all of that. So they get that threat assessment and yet the agency itself wrote, wrote in its own guidance uh, there were no known threats related to the joint session of Congress. 
The former chief of uh, Capitol Police at the time said the likelihood of violence was improbable. What a spectacular and uh, heartbreaking miscalculation when the threat assessments were there. So what did the Capitol Police do? They didn't use their most lethal weapons, such as stun grenades. They were not used that day because of orders from the leadership. That could have helped push back the rioters. Unbelievable. What a fa- I mean, Capitol Police, you have one job. And again, I'm not taking away in any way from the bravery of the officers. It's the leadership that screwed the rank-and-file officers, that screwed the country, that screwed all the members of Congress who were hiding in fear as hundreds and hundreds of people, some of them with weapons, stormed into the Capitol. Oh, and here's a kicker. The shields that they used, the riot shields to protect themselves against the people with, you know, batons and sticks and flagpoles, some of those shields shattered upon impacts because they hadn't been stored properly in a climate-controlled trailer. So they were no longer good. They just broke up. And the Civil Defense Unit tried to get to a bus that had all the shields, but they couldn't get to the shields because the door of the bus was locked. Horrible. Just mind-blowing. All right, moving on now to number four. I mean, this is a very, very big story. President Biden giving this speech today, which he is announcing that he will pull all American troops from Afghanistan by the symbolic date of 9-11, which is, of course, this September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the attacks, the terrorist attacks, which were uh, mounted by al-Qaeda, which was based in Afghanistan at the time. The reason that uh, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan was to topple the Taliban, which were in charge of the country at the time, and get at bin Laden, which took a, who took a long time to catch, didn't happen to the Obama administration, and uh, to root out the terrorist cells that were planning attacks on the U.S. Well, Biden has looked at this, and he's gotten his own military and intelligence officials to say there are other countries that are now more dangerous to America than Afghanistan, that there isn't a serious terrorist threat there. There is locally, but not in a way that threatens the United States. Well, naturally, um, you have the hawks in Congress, like Lindsey Graham, saying this is so a dangerous thing and there could be another 9-11 and all of that. You know who you're not going to have criticizing this? You're not going to have Donald Trump criticizing this because Donald Trump set this in motion. Donald Trump is the one in his final year who cut the deal with the Taliban for a withdrawal of the final troops. There's about 3,500 American troops left in Afghanistan. That was supposed to happen in May. Biden extended it because he wanted a fuller um, time to review the situation. And now he says he will start pulling out. And by September 11, 2021, um, all American forces will be gone. And in his speech today, he will say, you know, we invaded uh, 20 years ago uh, in the wake of 9-11, but that is no longer a reason for American troops to be there in 2021. He says, I am the fourth American president to preside over having American forces in Afghanistan. I'm not going to hand this off to a fifth. So I have kind of mixed feelings about this because there's a very good possibility that the Afghan government, even after 20 years of being propped up by U.S. aid, about $2 trillion in total is the figure, hundreds of thousands of American troops cycling in and out of Afghanistan over the past two decades. The government is shaky. There are large parts of the country that are already still controlled by the Taliban. 
And I can see the Taliban taking over. And at that point, it would be very, very difficult if there are uh, military threats, terrorist threats, for U.S. troops to get back in. But according to uh, David Sanger, a veteran foreign policy and military affairs writer for the New York Times, um, Biden would never use the term, but this is part of his own version of America First, the Trump slogan. Uh, his years on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and as vice president convict him that the U.S.-led effort in Afghanistan was destined to collapse of its own weight. Time and again, when he was vice president, Biden lost arguments because Obama ruled that we needed to stay there. Of course, Obama did the pullout in Iraq, but he thought that Afghanistan was the good war. Biden came to a determination in less than three months as president that only a full withdrawal with no link to political conditions on the ground would wrench America's attention away from the conflict of the past two decades. Because it's always been conditions-based. Well, if these conditions can be met, we can pull out. And the conditions are never met. 20 years later, of course, the conditions are never met because the Afghan government remains weak for all kinds of reasons, including corruption, including the strength of the Taliban, the appeal of the Taliban, for reasons that elude me, in parts of the country. Biden has concluded as president that a bigger goal for him is not only fighting the virus at home, but bolstering our economic competitiveness against China and proving to the world that American democracy can still ride to great challenges. So he wants to fight poverty, racial inequality, uh, invest in broadband, artificial intelligence, 5G, all of that, not using the military to prop up the government of President Ashraf Ghani. How many people even know the name of the president of Afghanistan right now? I mean, for so many years, it was Karzai, who I always thought, you know, seemed like a pretty good leader, but he couldn't get it done either. Now, clearly, Biden's approach carries risk. There's a worldwide threat assessment that was actually published uh, Tuesday morning uh, in which uh, his own people said the Afghan government will struggle to hold the Taliban at bay if the American-led coalition withdraws. There are other uh, countries uh, involved as well. And raising the specter of the fall of Saigon in 1975. U.S. troops pull out, the government collapses, the communists take over. Uh, But Biden's decision makes clear that contending with a rising China takes precedence over the idea that with just a few more years in Afghanistan, just a few more billions of dollars, the U.S. could achieve what it's failed to achieve over the last 20 years. I think with rank-and-file Americans, this is going to be pretty popular, not so much with the Washington foreign policy establishment or the hawks in Congress. Let me close with number five, and that is Stephen Breyer. Justice Stephen Breyer is 82 years old, and there's a whole lot of Democrats who want him to retire. Political has a piece saying Democrats are grappling with, it's very familiar, kind of a deja vu, an aging liberal Supreme Court justice, a paper-thin Senate majority, and activist pressure to swing the bench leftward. So the, the historical precedent here is what happened with Ruth Gator Ginsburg in 2014. Uh, She was already in her 80s, and some people went to her and said, you know, really, you've had a great career, Ruth. You've been a stalwart of this bench. But right now, uh, Obama has a Democratic majority in the Senate, and you should probably step down and let let him appoint a younger uh, liberal jurist uh, who can ensure a balance on the court from the liberal Democratic point of view. She absolutely refused to do that. She said, who are you going to get through Congress that's as liberal as me? But that was a short-sighted view if you take the view that if you're a Democrat who doesn't want conservatives to have what they enjoy today, a six to three conservative majority. Why? Because Ruth Bader Ginsburg then died with, you know, just a couple months left in Donald Trump's term. 
They rammed her through after refusing to give Merrick Garland a hearing, of course. And now we have Amy Coney Barrett on the bench. We have to see how she does. Obviously, she is a conservative jurist, but she hasn't been involved in any wild dissents or crazy rulings so far. Uh, so we'll see about that. But there's simply no question. So if Breyer doesn't retire, and all the, 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 the Republicans in the Senate, they just need one seat. And they've got control. And Mitch McConnell's majority leader. And then what McConnell says, no matter who you send up, it's two years away. I don't care. I'm not improving anybody. You will not even going to give you a hearing. And let's say Biden's a one-term president and a Republican wins in 2024. Then you're potentially looking at a 7-2 to two conservative majority. So there is a lot of pressure. Uh, so some liberal groups, according to Politico, are booting up a buyer-retire campaign. How convenient that that happens to rhyme. Uh, look, it's hard to go to a guy and say, you got to quit. He hasn't given any indication he's going to quit. Uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, Connecticut Democrat, says he would never presume to tell a Supreme Court justice to retire, but that Breyer himself is very familiar with the potential risks of a Republican president appointing his successor. Uh, I believe strongly, says Blumenthal, he has in mind the best interest of the country and will make the right decision, meaning he'll pack it in. But there's no indication of that. Uh, one unnamed Democratic senator telling Politico, it's self-evident that if you care at all about the balance of power on the Supreme Court, then you have to not hang on until the very last moment. He should enjoy his retirement and allow us to put a talented younger jurist that can serve for decades. Well, the pressure will be building. I guess if he's going to retire, he'd probably do it um, in September or before the next Supreme Court term to give uh, President Biden plenty of time to name someone. And, of course, you got to get the hearings through. And I don't know. Uh, it's You know, the thing is, all the Democrats in the world can't force Stephen Breyer to give up his lifetime appointment. He has been there for decades, old Ted Kennedy aide on the Hill. Uh, but you can be sure that this issue will heat up. Meanwhile, Biden's appointed a commission to look at, among other things, expanding the Supreme Court. He's not going to expand the Supreme Court. It's his hardest not to do. He doesn't want to do it. It's just a campaign promise. So if the Democrats want to get a little bit more balance, it's not going to be by doing that, by going nuclear. It's going to be by having their aging liberal lions retire so that younger liberals can be nominated while the Democrats still control the Senate. Maybe they'll control the Senate in the final two years of Biden's first term, but who knows? And with that... Thank you for listening as always. Stay safe. Get the vaccine if you can. You can subscribe uh, on your Amazon device. You just give it the order. Or you can uh, subscribe at Google Podcasts, Fox News Podcasts. Uh, let's see what else. I'm, uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, you name it. We're back here tomorrow with more Buzzbee. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.